We're taking a break from our study of Philippians to look at four prayers in the Bible. How long, O Lord? Come, Lord Jesus. I will remember and I will rejoice. Now, what do all four of these prayers have in common? They are all Advent prayers. They're waiting prayers. They're what God's people say to God when they understand that they are in a story that is bigger than themselves, that is heading somewhere. It's what's on the lips and hearts of people who are walking by faith and not by sight. And so last week, we explored the prayer, How long, O Lord? And this week, we're exploring the prayer, Come, Lord Jesus. We'll find this prayer in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, Again, page 1042. I'll read a little bit of the context before we pray and then explore this text together. This is God's Word. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, speak through your word, for your servants are listening. And Lord, may we listen not just with ears, but would we listen with the eyes of our hearts open to what you have to say. Holy Spirit, would you anoint this sermon? Would it not just simply be a lecture to us? But instead, would it be an encounter of you? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm reading an incredible book with my two older boys right now before bed, and it's called The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. Have you re- heard of this book or read this book? Yes, there's a, I see a hand. I see a hand. It's a book uh, written by Kate DiCamillo, uh, and we honestly cannot put it down. We cannot put it down. Uh, which is shocking because it's a story about a toy rabbit. doesn't seem like it would be quite exciting. But each chapter is unresolved. And then they're brilliant. The publishers of this book are brilliant. The next chapter has a little square picture with a teaser of what happens in the next chapter. And none of us, including me, want to wait for the end of this book. So I think my boys are experiencing what we all experience when we finish an episode on Netflix, right? And that image or that box pops up of the next uh, next episode, and there's no way that we're pressing stop. There's no way we're going to bed. It's 1 a.m., but there's no way. You see that picture? Something's going to happen. We all know that, right? Netflix actually has a word for this. They call it binge racing. Not binge watching, 
That's, that's too calm. Binge racing. We're racing to finish something they throw out to us. And it strikes me that we all live in a binge racing culture. It's what Walter Brueggemann calls the culture of now. The culture of now. I mean, only in a culture of now could I pull out my phone right now. And I kid you not, because Columbus is a part of Amazon Prime now, <laughs> appropriately titled Amazon Prime. Now, I could order a flat screen television right now in your midst, and it would be delivered before I leave here this morning. Only in a culture of now can we basically eliminate every aspect of waiting in our life. A culture of now doesn't value waiting. Culture of now doesn't value pondering. Culture of now doesn't value listening. The culture of now doesn't value growing. This is why I'm grateful for Advent. Because Advent is a season in which God's people purposefully wait. We commemorate. Christ's first coming, but in a very real sense, we are actually waiting for Christ's return when he will make all things new. And so Advent is a season in which we purposefully wait and consider what that looks like in our lives. So I believe Advent is one of the most counter-cultural things that you can do as a Christian. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are encountering something, I believe, that is counter-cultural. You have a people gathering here this morning and leaning into what it means to wait in a culture of now. As Duke Kwan says, Advent dignifies waiting. In a culture of now, Advent dignifies waiting. In a culture that denigrates waiting, that has lost the art of waiting, That does everything possible to remove and alleviate waiting. I think that all of our technological advancements is exactly to remove waiting. Advent dignifies that act. It's also why we're looking at the book of Revelation this morning. Because Revelation, like Advent, is meant to help you wait. Put away every crazy thing you have ever read or ever heard about the book of Revelation. Just put it away for a minute. (laughs) You may not think it's crazy, but I bet some of it is. And just listen to what John, the guy who wrote the book, says about why he wrote this book. It's in the first chapter of Revelation, if you want to follow along, in verse 9. John, Jesus' beloved friend and disciple, who who is in exile. He's a prisoner on a on a prison island. And listen to what he says. Here's why he wrote the book. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, which is just a word for suffering. So here he says, I'm a partner in the sufferings that you're experiencing in the kingdom that we're in by virtue of Jesus, King Jesus. The upside down kingdom. I'm a partner with you. I'm a brother with you in that, he says. And catch this, the patient endurance. I'm a brother. I'm a partner with you in what you are experiencing as patient endurance, he says. 
And we are all in Christ Jesus. And he goes on. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Real, actual churches, friends, not metaphorical churches, real churches that he knew and that he likely pastored. That's a beautiful sound, by the way, in the background. And he names them the church in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and goes on and on. But catch this. John is writing to churches that were having trouble waiting. They were having trouble with the idea of patient endurance. So I would like to offer to you the idea that the book of Revelation is a waiting manual. He knew that the local churches were struggling just like he was in exile on an island. And so God gave him vivid pictures. God says, write down what you see. God gave him vivid pictures to pass along to these churches in their waiting. You see, in Revelation, John wants to show, not tell. It's been said that the book of Revelation doesn't really tell us anything new about what the scriptures present. It just shows us what we already know from the book of Genesis to the book of Jude. It shows us what we already know in pictures and vivid imagery. Why? Because we don't forget pictures, especially when we're suffering, especially when we're trying to endure and we can't. And so God gave him vivid pictures. And so John wants to show you these So instead of telling you about our enemy, Satan, he shows us a what? A dragon. Instead of telling us about abusive governmental power, he shows us a sea beast. Just in time, kids. (laughs) Instead of telling you about religious deceit or spiritual abuse, he shows you a land beast. Instead of telling you about the lure of social acceptance. Pinching some incense to Caesar. At the cost of integrity to the Lord. Instead of telling you about that, he shows you a harlot. Instead of telling you how much God loves you and protects you, cherishes you, he shows you a bride. And instead of telling you about the salvation, about the victory of Jesus who died on a cross, who defeated sin, who defeated Satan. Instead of telling you, he shows you a lion and a lamb. Friends, these are pictures for people who are having trouble waiting. God does not want you to forget what he has done. He wants to help you patiently endure. And so he tattoos your heart. And soul with a visual gospel. Revelation, in other words, is an Advent picture book. And one of the most powerful pictures we have are the last five verses of your Bible. You turn back to that in chapter 22, starting in verse 17. It's a picture of the church, which I said is pictured as a bride waiting for her bridegroom. 
Jesus. So in verse 7, Jesus says, I am coming soon. And in verse 12, Jesus says, I am coming soon. And in verse 20, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. What do we do in the meantime? What does the bride do in the meantime? That's the question. Well, it appears to me that we do, and we're shown doing two things in this text. Invitation and expectation. Two things that are likely at odds, which I'll explain, but actually are married together. Invitation and expectation. In other words, we say come to others. And we pray come to Jesus. Advent is a season in which you all say come to others. Invitation. And pray come to Jesus. Expectation. I'd like to just briefly explore each in the text, starting with invitation, how we are to say come to others. In verse 17, if you look down again, it says the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit and the bride, that's us, the church, say come and then let the one who hears, that's that's us, that's us. We're hearing this message also say come and then let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take or come to the water of life without price. Which leads us to ask the question, to whom are we saying come? Are we saying come to Jesus or are we saying come to others? At first you would think the church is inviting Jesus to come. But look at the rest of the verse. It's an open invitation to all the spiritually thirsty to come and to drink without price. It's an invitation, in other words, to come and experience and to receive the good news of Jesus of grace. It's God's people saying come. Now God's people say come to Jesus, but that's just not until verse 20. Right now they're saying come to all the nations. They're saying come to everyone who has not tasted of Jesus' grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's actually an invitation to a free feast. Because this sounds a lot like the open invitation of the prophet Isaiah to come to this great feast where the Messiah is the host. Isaiah 55 verse 1 and 2, it says, come everyone who thirsts, come everyone who thirsts, come to what? The waters, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. So buy for free. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And this is one of the many summons in the the book of Isaiah. This ancient prophetical book. This ancient book is one of the many summons of of an invitation to the whole nations to come and and to enjoy and encounter the Messiah in a feast. It's an amazing dinner party where Jesus is host. And so the first thing that the church does while it waits on Jesus is to say, come to others who do not yet know him. 
The church, in other words, is to see the delay of Jesus as a window of invitation. Seven years ago, the outspoken atheist Penn Gillette posted a video encouraging, encouraging all Christians to share their faith. If you know anything about Penn Gillette, that's quite shocking. But he's being internally consistent because he understands that if we actually do believe two things. One, that there is a feast for those who are thirsty and hungry. And it is a free And two, that there is, as it says here, a warning against all who do not partake of Jesus. Eternal separation from God. Hell. He says, if these things are really in your box of belief, then it is the most unloving thing for you to not share that with me. And you can share it until I'm really annoyed with you. But keep sharing it. Otherwise, you're being false friends. That's his admonition. If we really thought Jesus was the only way, if we really thought that he was the waters of life, then the most unloving thing we can do, according to him, is to not invite others to drink, especially when that invitation is free. So as we wait on Jesus in Advent, our life should be marked by gratuitous invitation. Three quick, well, four quick suggestions for us. Invitation of this order is not to be done in isolation. Notice the bride is saying, come. The one who hears is saying, come, along with the Spirit. The Spirit empowers our inviting, in other words. We invite as a community of faith the bride, but we're not doing so on our own. The Spirit goes before us. The Spirit is with us. Number two, invitation is not argumentation. Uh, The image of invitation is very helpful to me. It means evangelism or sharing. Uh, The gospel is an invitation, not primarily an argument. Rational arguments for God, I think, are important. We are to be able to to give a defense as to our, our belief in the gospel. But let's be honest, friends. Rational arguments for God are not as persuasive today, are they? But you know what is? A community of people, as a community, saying, you know what? I was thirsty. And Jesus slaked my thirst. You come. You come and see. You come and see. People who are tired of drinking lies. People who are tired of drinking salt water. People who are dying of thirst. We have water of life. And we're just inviting them in. Thirdly, I think invitation, according to this verse, ought not to be solicitation. People hate a sales pitch. And that's not the posture of this text. The posture of this text are people who are crying out to the nations, come and feast. They're inviting people to a dinner. When's the last time you threw a party? That's the posture. 
that the church ought to have with evangelism. The same attitude, the same, the same attitude as inviting folks to your house. You're not soliciting, you're inviting. I think finally we can see from this text that invitation is not a suggestion. But it's a command. We don't need this text for that. I mean, Jesus himself says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, encouraging us to understand our identity as people who have tasted of God's salvation. And therefore, we invite others to the same. And here we see some warnings. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. This means that we are not to be more liberal than the Bible, and we are not to be more conservative than the Bible. We are not to take things away that we don't like in the Bible, and that we are not to add things that we wish were in the Bible. Which includes the summons to invite others. There might be some of us who would just prefer the evangelism piece to be out of this thing. But Jesus is inviting you to say, come. He's inviting you to say, come. And he's also commissioning you to say come. It is not a suggestion. We are all, by virtue of our calling, sent ones. Do you know the church? The word is from ecclesia, which means sent out ones. To be called and then sent. To be called by God and then to be sent. We're sent on mission. So we are to embark an invitation. But the second posture we see in here is that of expectation. We do say come to others, but we also say come to Jesus. Take a look at verses 20 through 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. So John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is an ancient prayer in Aramaic, the ancient language of Jesus. Maranatha. And Paul prays this in 1 Corinthians 16.22. At the end of his letter to the Corinthians, John prays it here, and we are being called to pray it as well. We are asking Jesus, in other words, to return as quickly as possible, to make all things new, to fix everything that's broken, to wipe away our tears. What does it mean then to pray this prayer? Well, it means to pray with trust. I love how John says, Amen. Before he prays, come Lord Jesus. This is a backwards prayer. Jesus gives him a promise, I'm coming soon, and and John prays backwards. He says, Amen, which means it is true. And so he's praying with trust. He's putting Amen first. He's saying, yes, I believe your promise. And so John is teaching you to pray backwards as well. When we pray We always begin with trust in God's promises. He will return. It also means we pray come with others. I love that amen. Amen. The word amen is the one word that the entire church across the world shares in common. Whenever we say amen, we ought to think that we are saying amen, not just with believers in our city, not just with believers in our country, but with believers across the world, across time. Amen. 
I also think it encourages us to pray with hope. Remember, hope is faith looking forward. What are we looking forward to? When we say, come Lord Jesus, what are we asking? If you turn to chapter 21, I'll just read the text because I can't improve on this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is chapter 21, verse 1. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Not all things brand new, all things renewed. He is taking everything in your life and in your story and in this broken, unjust world. Everything on the news that you are, that your heart is heavy about. He's taking all of that and he is renewing it. He's not scrapping it. He's renewing his good creation that he made. He's fixing everything that's broken. If you turn to chapter 22 and you flip to verse 3, you'll get some more images of what we're actually praying when we say, Come, Lord Jesus. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb, that's Jesus, will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Tears will be wiped away, no more death, all things made new. He who you're following by faith right now, you will see face to face. These images are meant to stoke expectation. That's why God gave them to us. I remember sitting in an office with my mentor during seminary over 10 years ago. And he had heard crushing news about a dear friend of his. He was our mentor and he was a world weary man. He had suffered. And he was mentoring about five of us peons. We were green. We were young. We were going to change the church, you know. We were going to change the world, right? And here he is, encountered devastating news. And he invited us into his office to pray. And as this man wept, do you know what he prayed? He prayed, come Lord Jesus. Over and over and over again. And I was young and I'm like, that's lame. Come on, let's, let's pray more specific prayers. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I didn't understand. I had not bled yet. I had not lost yet. But when you do, you understand why that man prayed, Come, Lord Jesus. Look, we won't pray this unless we come face to face with our sorrows and our own hurts. 
and square them next to Jesus' promises. So what will happen if this becomes your prayer? If you pray this prayer, come Lord Jesus, you will start to see God's bigger story. You will start to see that come Lord Jesus is an antidote to self-absorbed living. Now we're in a story, in other words, that is going somewhere. A story that is so much bigger than our lives. And recently I read about a cathedral that was just accomplished. The building of this cathedral just finished after over 100 years. Which tells you that the architect, the designer of this thing, saw this building in his mind but did not see it in its completion. But he knew it was going somewhere. Similarly, when we pray, come Lord Jesus, what we're doing is we're stripping away a sort of myopic, me-centered way of understanding our lives. When we pray, come Lord Jesus, as my mentor did in seminary, we understand that we are a part of something way bigger than just our chapters, our own stories. The second thing it does, when we start praying, come Lord Jesus, we start to see that we are not the hero of the story anymore. But Jesus is the hero of the story. As others have said, we start to read the Bible Not so much to apply it to our lives. We start to read the Bible to apply our lives to it. Why? Because the Bible is a story of God's redemption. It's God's rescue story. And as we read this Bible, we start to see the look. We're not the hero of this thing. In other words, we have been placed in this story. And when we say, come Lord Jesus, we are worshiping because we are acknowledging that we are not the point anymore. That we have been rescued into our own myopic sort of self-centered lives. And we've been placed into something glorious. God's rescue plan. We start to admit we can't solve the problems of this world. We start to admit we can't solve the problems of my world, of my life. Only Jesus can. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. It strikes me that come Lord Jesus when I was a young person and that mentor was praying that prayer and I simply did not understand why. It strikes me that that is a symptom of a greater thing in, I think, America and in the West. We don't cry out, come Lord Jesus, probably because we are pretty self-sufficient. And we think that we can solve just about every problem we encounter. And if we haven't solved it yet, it's just a matter of time. But the cry, come Lord Jesus, is a helpless cry. It's simply acknowledging there are some things that we cannot fix. Come Lord Jesus. So come Lord Jesus is a unique Advent prayer. It's a unique prayer that we all can pray, which is really just a confession. I'm weak. I don't have it. You need to come and fix this. And so we say come. That's our invitation. But we also pray come. That's our expectation. And I think the picture that this gives us is a humble bride inviting others to taste of grace and then praying to God, come fix this place. It's actually a helpful tension to me because you would think that these things are against each other. Saying come, invitation, and also saying pray, come. Because as you, as you say pray, come, you're in essence saying, I hope you would come right now. And in doing so, shutting the window 
of invitation. And yet, on the other hand, we're called to say, come, say, say, come. How can these two things be married? How can these two dynamics actually come together? Well, I think it's this way. Long for his return. Long for it. But in longing for it, see that it is a precious window of opportunity to invite others to the feast. When you're saying, come, Lord Jesus, you are saying, I'm hungry. I'm really hungry. I'm really hungry. And thank you, Jesus, that you gave us a little bit of a foretaste of that banquet that you're preparing. But I'm, let's get this going. Come on. <laughs> and in that eagerness, you're saying, come along, come along, come along. Do you see how they're married together? Peter says, it's the patience of the Lord is salvation. It's a time of invitation. I think Paul, we're going through Philippians together. I think he's a great model of this. He says, I want to be with Christ. Remember? And yet on the other hand, he said, it is better that I stay with you. And we see that tension of invitation and expectation. On the one hand, he's saying, I want to be on mission. I want to be on mission. I want the window to open. Yet on the other hand, he said, I want to be with Christ. And if you are an Advent person, you're going to feel that similar tension this morning. Both desires are intact. So may we be a church who calls for Christ to return with the same passion that we cry and call for our friends to taste unsafe.